it basically reminds us that we live moment to moment. We don't live in the future. But for that moment, they are together. And that's how it ends. Whatever else happens tomorrow, that's another day. And we don't go there. The narrative doesn't privilege that. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. It's almost Christmas, so this week we're chatting to the writer of a modern festive classic. Phyllis Nagy fought for decades to make Carol, her heart-wrenching tale of forbidden love between two women set in the 1950s. This incredibly moving 2015 romantic drama, directed by Todd Haynes, introduced us to Therese, an aspiring photographer played by Rooney Mara, who's working a temp job in a department store when she meets Carol, a glamorous older woman played by Kate Blanchett, who turns her world upside down. The film had this snowy December backdrop that accentuated the emotion of Carol and Therese's longing to be together in a society that won't allow it. Phyllis adapted the story from an acclaimed 1952 novel by her friend Patricia Highsmith. Adapting The Price of Salt, as the novel was originally titled, involved overcoming several hurdles though. As she struggled to bring Carol to the screen, Phyllis found herself battling to be heard in a film industry that was, and arguably still is, reluctant to give a proper voice to LGBTQ stories. It may have taken 18 years, but it was a battle that Phyllis ultimately won. Since its release in 2015, Carol has become a cult festive favourite, celebrated anew every December. Here's what Phyllis had to say about her belief in the story that kept her fighting. We also talked about the film's legacy today, the subtle details that you might not notice decorating Carol and Therese's romance, and fans clamouring for a sequel that Phyllis insists is not coming. We also got round to an important question, or at least a question that I've wondered about ever since I saw the film for the first time. Did Carol leave those gloves behind on purpose, the gloves that spark her and Therese's entire romance? Phyllis's answer was intriguing. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Phyllis, thanks so much for joining us. There are labours of love, then there's Carol, a film that you fought for 20 years to get to the screen, honouring an extraordinary writer who you shared a friendship with, uh, Patricia Highsmith. So five years on, how do you reflect back on this movie now and the struggle that you underwent to get it made? Can, can it be put into words? Well, I mean, there, there are two ways to look at it. One is that I'm getting older and I just don't remember what the, <laughs> what the struggle was early on. I mean, it didn't feel like a struggle at the time. And as the years went on, it felt like an impossibility. So that's a different feeling. That's a, that's a feeling of resignation to one's fate. And um, there was a moment indeed where the original producer lost the rights to the novel where I thought, oh, well, that's that. As Carol says, <laughs> I, started, I started becoming, you know, sort of odd versions of the character in the script. <laughs> that's that, that's over. And, and it was for, um, oh, I don't know, quite a while. I, I, I seem to remember a year, a year and a half passing by before 
the specter of it um, arose again uh, in the form of Liz Carlson, uh, with whom I'd worked before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even then, I, I, I didn't want to go back to what I imagined would be another torturous process of, <laughs> oh, yeah, let's, let's have the same questions, the same reservations, the same, we'll never get a, a, a woman to do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but of course, the world had changed in, in that time, thankfully. And um, it, it really wasn't that difficult once Liz convinced the estate to give her the rights. And once she convinced me, indeed, to actually um, allow my script to be used, because I, I was just tired of it, you know. Yeah, it sounds like you had all sorts of setbacks that were kind of informed by, disappointingly and somewhat ironically, a lot of the attitudes that we see in the movie. So from what I've researched, it wasn't just homophobia that you were encountering in trying to get this film made. You know, people sort of like not wanting to fund the film over fears of a gay love story, but also plain old misogyny. There were question marks over a film starring two female leads. Shock horror. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I think that was it. I mean, one of the lucky things that happened with this film was that it was developed in the UK and we had a real champion in Tessa Ross who who remained with it um, throughout all, most of that time. And um, it was... It was about women in in various ways. It was about a woman who leaves her child, two women fronting a film. Was anyone a big enough movie star to to do that? The whole experience, seeing the the changes, um, becoming a bit like um, a prisoner to the project in the best possible way. <laughs> yeah, um, that's new people coming and having to go over it again and again and again. No, no, it's not about people who, who regret being gay or who fret about it or, (laughs) you know, I used to take to asking people what I'm sure was a rude question, but there comes a point when you don't care. I would say to certain people, do you wake up in the morning regretting being heterosexual? Do you think about it at all? Or do you think about other things like you regret being a bad person or, you know, <laughs> things that you can control in some interesting way? That was the, um, the major stumbling block with people. And it really wasn't about them being gay. It was about them in some way, obviously having to suffer for it in some way or, because we, to be fair, we'd had a tradition of films that were quite successful that hewed to that formula, more or less. Um, I can think of Precious Few, here anyway, that did not end uh, sort of badly, um, even Brokeback Mountain ends badly, at least for one of those guys. In Britain, of course, has a has a much more... I don't know if you'd call it healthy tradition, but at least you had, you know, you have My Beautiful Laundrette and what else? Beautiful Thing, I guess, and various um, examples in cinema, Billy Elliot, perhaps, of mm. um, a rather more healthy approach to this. And I, 
perhaps there was nothing with women, but still, you know, we thank God everyone who was producing this felt that way. Yeah. Because it could have, you know, someone could have come along with a lot of money and said, we want to do this, but you have to have a couple of scenes of Carol weeping and questioning her sexuality. And, and then I would have been gone. It would have been a completely different, you know, probably some guy would have come in and rewritten the script. Or that In that way, I suppose it was an epic, um, agonizing thing, but it didn't feel like that, except when you considered, you look back at a certain point at a certain year and thought, geez, it's been, yeah, <laughs> it's been all these years and um, this means this is not going to happen. It certainly has been a few years now and in which time the film has just amassed this passionate audience. It must be surreal for you not only to have won that battle in, in getting it made, but for this movie to be now out there and to command such a following. So every Christmas there's renewed celebration for Carol by legions of fans who have such a strong emotional connection to the material. How moving is that for you every December? Yeah, it, it's, it's very um, humbling, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I knew even whilst the whole um, awards season of it all was going on that it would outlive that and that it would that would become a footnote the fact that carol whatever it was didn't wasn't nominated for best picture oscar lots of things haven't been and um it was not going to matter although it was quite moving to see the um the amount of uh, objection i suppose to that fact from from its ardent supporters. Um, but over time, that's, that's become less angry and more, we just love this movie, which is, you know, is just better um, for all involved. I try very hard to um, engage with that level of, um, what would you call it, fandom for the film. And um, so I do this delicate dance between okay, I've lived with this for a long time, too long, more than like half my life. It's time for you to live with it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm on to other things. There's more to, to life than Carol. Um, and yet, it, there isn't. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is what it is. Um, there seems to be quite a clamoring for a sequel, but as I try to delicately point out, there is no sequel. <laughs> you don't want to see the sequel. You don't want to know what happens in the 60s and, and the 70s, God knows, to those people. And, um, and there's no other book. I mean, that's the book. That's it. Yeah. She's not going to resurrect and write a sequel, and um, neither am I. <laughs> Carol 2, Electric Boogaloo. Carol 2. There's a, a fascinating move to, to have an Abby Carol movie, which makes a little more sense, but still, that's not the narrative. You know? <laughs> Carol didn't end up with Abby. That's another sad ending. <laughs> so, you know, you know, you know, I don't want to go there, that's for sure. It's interesting for me as a fan. It used to be that I knew it was Christmas when I saw the uh, Coca-Cola ad on the TV. 
Now I know it's Christmas because my Twitter timeline is suddenly full of stills from Carol and quotes from Carol. Um, so people do absolutely love this film and rightly so. What do you put it down to? I mean, you spent so long with your head in this world, in with these characters. Did you manage to kind of work out in that time what it is about this story that's so special? What, what do you think it is about Carol that's left such a mark? Well, for one thing, I think the film is very good. I mean, it's a, a, a really beautiful, well-made film that doesn't pander to um, sentimental expectations, but which is still, I, you know, very moving. I know I'm biased, but I do find it to be very moving and quite, gosh, I don't like the word uplift, but it's got something. it's appropriate, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, all those terrible words, uplifting, relatable, et cetera, which I never use, but um, <laughs> they, can all, they can all be applied, I suppose, to, to that. Um, so there's that. I mean, it could have been a horrible film. You know, I, I imagine a version of this that, would not have been well-made, which would have featured a lot of hand-wringing and weeping and, you know, um, mm. guilt. There are ways to portray guilt without having speeches about it. But also, the other part of that is because both the film and the script and the actors involved resist a, a false notion of sentimentality, that there is a way in which this mirrors real life, even, or real life emotion, I should say, even in its um, stylized renderings of a bygone era. It's, mm. the, it's the past that allows the present to be so moving with that film. And it is completely of its, of its moment, the narrative. It doesn't seek to connect 1952 or 1953 to now, or to 2015. It's the same in significant ways. And, and in some not so, um, it's not the same in significant ways, but insofar as the, those emotions and what's going on and what's at stake, it's still the same, which you yeah. can find depressing, but there are lots of things that are still the same that don't have anything to do with LGBTQ rights or, you know, child custody. It's just a human, a human condition that we never ever seem to learn our lessons. And that's good because artists would have nothing to write about or <laughs> make films about. There's nothing, um, there's nothing especially exciting about um, happy stories. <laughs> I mean, happy in that sense of Disneyfy. Was that one of the things that kept you fighting? Because I mean, a lot of people over the course of 20 years, they would have thrown the towel in or decided the time has passed, but you stuck at it. You kept fighting for this project. Was that partly down to the scarcity of stories like this, the need for stories like this? Was it down to, I guess it might have also been down to your uh, friendship with Patricia. So you guys were actually close in, in real life, right? And uh, she had died a year before you came onto the project. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, my reasons were entirely selfish, I suppose. Yes. I felt a, a responsibility to uh, the book and to just the memory of, of Pat. But also, I just didn't want anyone else to get their hands on it. 
You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a business in which people are constantly um, rewritten and um, many times for no good reason. You know, I see scripts all the time that people say, gee, we think this needs another pass. And I look at it and I think, no, it doesn't. But this is the, you know, this is the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just didn't want that to happen. And I was very naive, of course, because if it could have happened at any time. Um, but it didn't. So everything seemed to eventually feel bizarrely faded, just like that meeting between Carol and Therese. And, and, and what happens to them seems oddly faded as well. Sometimes the, the stars just align, I suppose, and it takes them sometimes 20 years. But there you go. So at what point in your life and your career when you began writing Carol? Were you still in London at the time? Because you were at uh, the Royal Court Theatre. Yeah. I, I was in London until um, 2007 or eight when I decided it was time to come here full time. I was really interested in film, always, but... I knew that however I entered into that, um, that strange uh, and, and sharky sometimes <laughs> business, that I, I, it had to be with a project that I, I really loved, I really wanted to do. And I'd been quite fine um, in the theater. And I knew also that eventually film, the films would come to me, somebody would come to me that I wouldn't have to go out there and, 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 and say, hey, take me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just waited, and this opportunity presented itself probably a year and a bit. Um, I think it was towards the end of 1996 when, when the producer approached Mel Kenyon, my agent at Casarado, to say, hey, do you, I have the rights to this. Um, book and do you have anyone who might be able to do this and it was one of the few books of hers that I hadn't read because Mm -hmm. she didn't she had a lot of opinions about her own work and um, that was not one of the books that she recommended I read that I go out of my way to read (laughs) Um, she did give me an edition of it when it was republished you know it it, she changed the title to Carol when mm-hmm. Bloomsbury um, republished it. And um, she gave me a book and I said, oh, great, I'll read it. And she said, no, 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 not now. <laughs> read, you know, Deep Water or, or <laughs> um, Edith's Diary or, or one of those. Um, and so I knew that she was ambivalent about it. So I didn't want to... Um, read it and then have to say, gee, I don't like it, or you're wrong, I love it. And I read it and I knew that it was important to, to take it on because the book also resists easy psychologizing. Mm. And I think it was one of the reasons the book sold as well as it did back in the 50s. Pat often spoke about getting letters from people saying, you, you know, this book changed my life, etc. So it's both the book and the film that have that quality about them. 
which ultimately is the real underlying reason that it's so enduring. It, its narrative is so enduring. I get, I got those letters too, very moving from women in their 90s, 80s, and who had a very similar story to Carol or Therese. And um, reading the stories of their relationships, and what they went through and, and how they got through these things is very moving. Mm-hmm. And I think Pat, as much as she was not interested in other people in a, in a funny way, um, would have been also moved, I hope, by the response anew to her novel and, and to the film. I, I don't know what she would have thought of the film. Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you that support for Script Apart this week comes from Cave Day. Revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to harness everything they've got to overcome internal and external obstacles. Cave Day lead group focus sessions for a worldwide community every day on Zoom that help you do just that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints, and energizing breaks. Members report they get two to four times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy winners and Oscar winners. Gift cards are available and make a great present as we head towards the festive season, and Script Apart listeners can try it out for free. Head to caveday.org and type in the promo code SCRIPTAPART, all uppercase, at checkout. That's caveday.org. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Patricia's work had been adapted quite a few times for, you know, into films that have been deemed classics by everyone else, like Strangers on a Train. But for her, she had sort of a few reservations, put it that way. We had a sort of, not an argument about Strangers on a Train, but I mean, it is a great film. It's not a book. Yeah. But, <laughs> and nor is um, Purple Noon or any of those attempts at Ripley that she was a, mm. a, alive to see. She would have loved Kate Blanchett. That, <laughs> that, that I know that I'm sure she would have found her quite intriguing um, in many ways. And I'm, I'm sure she would have appreciated the style of it, but who knows what, you know, she was so contrary. Um, I made quite a few significant changes along the way that she might have objected to. Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of had to, right? Because Carol or, uh, yeah, The Price of Salt, as it, as it was originally published as, it's so intimate, so first person. And I, I suppose the challenge for you as a dramatist must have been without lapsing into voiceover, how do you find exterior ways of showing what's going on in these characters' heads? Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah how did you approach yeah. that task? With film, you see, if it, if it had been a play or um, a film that I was just writing for myself, I could have handled that in various ways. But of course, the minute somebody pays for something, you are beholden to them and their vision. And so it's a double, sometimes a triple edged sword. It wasn't just what I wanted. It's how it could fit into what, I mean, Film 4 commissioned that before Tessa Ross was the head of Film 4. Right. And then the guy who commissioned it left and the next guy tossed it off his slate. So they didn't actually own it when Tessa came back. 
And she read the, the script and got excited. And we had to tell her that Film 4 had owned it, actually. But now <laughs> she bought it back. And I guess that, you, you know, she just made sure that it got made eventually. Mm. She was like the patient, patron saint of, of Carol in many ways. So, yeah, I had to, you had to, I had to take on board the producer you know, the, the people who commissioned it, who were men, which is different, you know, yes. <laughs> you have to sort of explain a few things along the way. <laughs> Eventually, when, when there is a, a draft that pleases them, you then get a director who then, you know, you have to work with them. The whole situation, the whole process over all those years was a huge um, lesson in diplomacy, in, <laughs> in how to keep what's essential to your vision and your style and, you know, what you like to do as a writer, how you keep that intact while also pleasing a million other people along the way. The draft we're discussing today is fascinating to read Phyllis as a fan of the film. The structure of the film is in place, a lot of the beats are the same or at least very similar, but there are interesting glimpses into places the film could have gone, into themes that you could have lent into more heavily but opted not to. So we begin at Therese's apartment, New York City, early morning. It's December 1st, pitch black, the barely discernible figure of Therese asleep on a single bed buried beneath tatty bed covers and makeshift blankets. An alarm clock erupts, shrill and startling. Therese doesn't move a muscle. I wanted to stop just for a moment, Phyllis, and yeah, take a second to discuss how this is obviously a film that takes place during the festive period. I'm interested to know, why is Christmas such a powerful and emotive backdrop for the movie? What is it about the holidays that gives you such a good framework for the journey you're about to go on with these characters? What is it about Christmas time that emotionally chimes with some of the feelings that these characters are about to experience? I remember reading way back when, when this was starting, a series of uh, articles, like scholarly articles from psychological periodicals that talks about Christmas and talks about how it is the most stressful and therefore the most dramatic holiday. You, you often hear, or well, often, but whenever I have uh, heard about suicides within my community, say, it's very often around Christmas or mm. New Year's. There's a it's a time that's either intensely joyful or hopeful or not. There seems to be no, no middle ground there. And so it's such with Therese and Carol. Um, Carol's going through a divorce and, and Therese, I mean, this is the only, she has a job for the holidays, right? She's a temp. And that's mm -hmm. a lot of people get those jobs for the holiday. Um, it's a heightened emotional state. Also, she's, you know, being bothered by Richard. You know, let's get engaged or married or you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and so... Around the holidays, that becomes increasingly potent because you, you're dealing with family again around the holidays, which Therese, I, I quite sympathize with her because she didn't have any around her. 
and everyone around her does. I mean, uh, as someone who's always lived mostly away from home, which is New York, I'm never around family for those holidays. And as I watch friends <laughs> navigate their parents or, or siblings and and the various uh, emotional traumas that result from those things, I'm simultaneously relieved and also sad about not having those things myself. And so I tried to, to replicate that somehow in the, in, the, in the character of Therese and how she's maneuvering all of this. She's a watcher, isn't she? Mm. Mostly. Which is why she's a photographer as well. Well, as she was in the book, I mean, she was a watch. She is always Pat, basically, um, an observer. Although in the book, she's a, um, a would-be stage designer, scenic designer rather than a photographer. So Therese gets up, Richard is outside the window. Um, you describe him as well-bundled in scarves and hat against the cold. He stands striding a bicycle. Richard yells, you're nuts. Therese takes in a deep breath of cold air and replies, mm, I love this air. I'm late. A beat passes. She blows him down a kiss. Hi, you. They then share this kind of fun bike ride in Central Park, giggling as they swerve trees. Therese almost spills her coffee. They fool around with Santa hats. It's a little bit rosier than the relationship between um, the pair that we see in the film. So obviously we see a version of this in the final film. But in the final film, you decided instead to begin the movie before we go into this with the end almost. So we see Therese and Carol at dinner and the rest of the movie is almost in flashback. Can you tell me about like what led to that decision? That was interesting that again, uh, when a director comes on board. So in this case, it was Todd, right? There was a director that we waited for before Todd came on board, but we never even had those discussions because he went off to do another film. So who knows what, what that might have been. But for Todd, he's always interested, or at least he said so at the time, in beginning films on characters who aren't important, who don't show up again. And he had had an idea about... It, directors let privilege one aspect of a narrative um, over all others. And in this case, it was the love story or the obsessive nature of this love story. And he had in mind uh, a model for this, which was Brief Encounter, which begins with a, a similar, it, it has a similar uh, framing device, I suppose. He said, well, you know, see if you can figure out what, how that might work. That's where it came from. But at the same time, which you, you see in the shooting script, he was also um, fascinated by the notion of this double flashback structure, which took the party that appears at the end of the film and breaks that up over the, the course of, of the movie. So we have the framing device and then we have these flashbacks and flash forwards to that final party before Therese goes back to the Oak Room. And I... I suspected immediately that this would not ever work. You do have that discussion, but, you know, people have to try what they feel works for them. And in fact, it was the first thing I think that went away 
in in the in post production in the editing room. I think there were several reasons why, but you know, always ultimately it was because it didn't work. It wasn't necessary. Um, wasn't germane to the story that Todd was privileging. As these first few pages continue, we start to get a glimpse into Therese's working life at the department store. So in your draft, there's a middle-aged woman who's complaining to Therese. As someone who's worked in retail over Christmas time, I could definitely relate to that particular story beat. Um, It's then on page seven that we meet Carol. And it's so beautifully written the way you introduce her. A pair of black leather gloves are tossed onto the desk so that they brush against Therese's arm. She looks up to see a woman who's a vision of cool beauty. Tall, slim, blonde bob, smart black tailored suit, a dash of colour from a green silk scarf. The woman is breathtaking. This is such a special scene and obviously so pivotal, of course, to what we're about to see. I know it was the real life sparking point for Patricia's novel, so you did have some basis to go on with this scene, but, but how did you approach this moment? What were you trying to achieve with it? Well, you know, those scenes are always the, the most um, freeing, liberating scenes to write in this were the, the early scenes between them because they're sheer romantic scenes. I mean, yes, they're subtextual, but it's, oh God, look at you. It's love at first sight. <laughs> it's all those things. And, and in my mind, I had the picture of Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Mm. Work with. That was my Carol. You know, every time I vision, envisioned her, that's what she looked like. So really, it was just a description of her in, <laughs> in Rear Window in, in various ways early on. And, and it stuck pretty much. Carol wants a doll for her daughter. She tries to light a cigarette. She's informed that she's not allowed to do that. That then sort of leads to this lovely little moment of laughter, the first of many they'll share together. Shopping makes me nervous, says Carol. That's okay. Working in shops makes me nervous. Is there thematic significance at all to the train set here that Carol ends up ordering? Because dolls are traditionally regarded as girly, was the train set a case of beginning to thread in some of the subversion here in terms of the desires women are expected to have, the roles they're meant to play? Oh, yeah. Or was it just a train set? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. There was that. There was, well, she doesn't play with dolls. She's, this is an unusual 19-year-old and things that Carol might notice about her that are unusual. So this is one. Also, it's about the itinerant nature, the travel, the, you know, the trains being um, quite a romantic, again, mode of transportation, and and also a harbinger of doom in a lot of our literature, you know, mm. um, in these love stories that end badly. So Anna Karenina and, and all of that. So all of these things were percolating and, you know, the good thing about films, you can just lay them in. You don't yeah. have to explain. And there are people who will get that and people who don't. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. There are multiple levels of reading to any okay film and script. So that was, that was always fine. Well, speaking of things you don't have to explain, Carol pays and she leaves her gloves and this is something that, to the best of my knowledge, was not in the novel. So this is something you've added, but you leave it ambiguous, even in the screenplay, as to whether she's done that on purpose 
or whether it's an accident. And there's been debate among fans as to, yeah, what's going on there. And I kind of was wondering about it as I uh, reading the script. And it kind of came to me that there not being a concrete answer to the gloves conundrum is very much in keeping with the feeling of a new romance. So you analyze these micro moments for hidden meaning. It's quite possible that Therese was asking herself the same question. So can you talk to me a little bit about the gloves? That's that's so that's always been a fascinating discussion for me to witness or debate among people. People who tend to see Carol as a predator, and, and there are quite a few in the lesbian community, um, especially. Oh yeah, she's a she's got it. She's just going right. Um, see the gloves as a purposeful gesture, and those who are willing to. I don't know, entertain a sort of um, more Freudian or Jungian (laughs) (laughs) answer to this. See it as one of those things that happen. I mean, that does happen. People do leave things. It's also possible to be very practical about working it out. Like she's flustered. Mm. This is someone who is just sort of taking her by surprise without thinking this will ever come to anything. And you leave, you know, it's you're rushing, it's Christmas. It's quite conceivable that it was an accident. I like to say that it was a purposeful accident. So <laughs> that, that too, I think, plays into um, things that happen in, in first meetings with people mm. who are, you know, destined to meet again. Whether it happens in a bar and people leave behind um, something, matchbook with a phone number, or <laughs> you know, that is a purposeful thing for sure. But sometimes people don't mean to leave the traces of their desire behind. It just uh, it happens. You have to. I think it's less interesting to see it as um, a classically predatory move myself but again yeah it it can be viewed that way we then begin to get a look inside carol's home life we see her like fractured relationship with her husband harge and the sort of performance of sorts that they put on for their daughter rindy and you, you sprinkle in these references to abby who's a friend who is obviously a point of uh contention for the pair someone casting a shadow over their relationship now Hodge is a really interesting character because even in this draft he could have easily been written as a much more abusive more villainous and controlling antagonist instead his, his behavior over the course of the film is objectionable but it still feels human and real like he does terrible things but from a place of being wounded over the sort of death of the marriage and the, the film never descends the way it could have into him being this kind of pantomime villain. So, yeah, could you tell me a little bit about how you saw that character and how you approached Hodge? The book, he is way more of a pantomime villain of sorts. But it can, that can work over the course of a novel where you read 50 pages, you put it down, you come back to it. It's not this intense temporal experience of, I'm stuck here for two hours with these people. And I keep seeing this guy who is just unbelievably 
ridiculous. You mean, where's the twirling mustache? <laughs> um, but it also doesn't ring true. I mean, you know, he's he wasn't Harge wasn't Ted Bundy. I mean, there's there's bad, <laughs> and then there's human, and and taking the example of Chekhov, there are no human behavior is is what it is. You understand it in order to create. You empathize with it in order to create full characters. Now, with Harge, there was also something what I call one of those duh moments. It's like, why would Carol have married someone who was so awful? You know, it didn't make any sense. She's not awful. She's quite, I, and he's not a physical, uh, physically abusive spouse, mm-hmm. um, which can happen. People can be fooled by quite charming physical abusers. He wasn't that. And so he had to have something <laughs> that attracted her and held the marriage together and significantly held it together in the face of Abby, mm. which, again, is hinted at. But, you know, they don't ever directly argue about what it was that happened. You know, they, and, and he doesn't move her away. So putting all of those things together... I thought, well, he's a man who it is understandable that he is, first of all, he's, he's divorcing, and that's important, before the introduction of Therese. They're getting a divorce. That's on the table. But the introduction of Therese exacerbates the old wounds for him. It, it reopens things. And that it's a woman uh, that she's gone away with. Would it have been easier if Carol had left him for somebody he worked with, a a male colleague? Mm, No, but it would have been different. I don't think he would have sent the the private detective in quite that way to gather evidence of of her moral um, instability, let's say. Hey everyone, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about one of our great sponsors this week. Siren Screams is a new audio horror anthology series from Script Sirens, a collective of female and non-binary scriptwriters based in the West Midlands. All six of these eerie audio plays were created remotely during lockdown, in that spooky season between Halloween and Friday, November 13th. And you know what? It shows. Each episode is full of fright and imagination. Give it a go by checking them out on Spotify. Search for Siren Screams. That's S-I-R-E-N Screams. Okay, back to the conversation. There is a moment in this draft, the next scene, yeah, sort of answers that question you posed a minute ago of why would she have married him in the first place? So Carol says, we were 20, it was rash and silly and sexy and magnificent. And then I grew up. That was my mistake. Rindy came along and she was enough for a long while. Then there's Abby. Thank God for Abby. So you do sort of sprinkle in, in this draft, sort of hints at what could have happened. But it's interesting reading this first draft or this early draft to see what you've taken out. Is there a power in hinting rather than explicitly stating? Sometimes, and then sometimes not. I mean, I think there are things probably from a variety of drafts or even from the shooting script that didn't make it in that I think would have helped, not help the film. The film doesn't need help, 
but would have would have made the experience fuller, perhaps mm. for those who didn't find it emotionally satisfying. I think there is a point um, at which a withholding becomes a deficit and, and can be um, seen as a stylistic um, tick. I don't think that's true of the film, but you know, there are certain things that make other things make sense, like the, the whole sequence of Christmas morning at Carol's in the shooting script, in other versions. I'm not sure if it was in, I think it was in the version you read in some form where Abby shows up to uh, wish Carol a good trip. But really it's mm. to see the, the new girl and they have it <laughs> together. It's, it, you know, and this is all about levels of female attachment, friendship, love, the sort of subtleties of this. You can imagine the same scene happening with with men, quite frankly. Mm. <laughs> I don't think. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I can, I can imagine a different sort of scene happening with three gay men on Christmas morning, but not that, and not mm. with that. Women just stopping short of of saying what they mean the whole time, <laughs> which leads <laughs> to a lot of unnecessary baggage in in the film and in life is it necessary to have speeches like the one that you you read out no it's quite nice speech it might have been included but the film didn't need it Mm -hmm. so ultimately there is that writer director yes but um someone who's a writer and i you know it's it's quite odd because i was not I was originally a writer for hire, but I really wasn't a writer for hire on this film. <laughs> um, so it's quite interesting to look at the ways in which people fall over themselves trying to <laughs> say that I, you know, that I was or that every writer is is superfluous. I don't think that's true in, mm-hmm. in this case and some some other kind of key cases. Like the year that we were released, there was... Um, also room which yeah. you know that's emma emma movie as much as uh, lenny abrahamson's or you know anyone else's yeah. so um it's good that every once in a while a situation like that occurs a movie that people like or love to remind them that it's not all just that it is a, a collaboration and it's further a collaboration among lots of people, including your actors. So Kate, who was who was around, um, predated Todd's arrival, and who ended up being an executive producer. I mean, there were it's a it was a passion project for more people than just me or or the producers. So Carol is then told of Hodge's bid for sole custody of Rindy under this morality clause. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. How do you describe the way that Carol is being torn in two at this moment? It seems like she's being made to choose between playing happy families and having her daughter ripped away from her. Which she eventually does all of those things. I mean, in one way or another, Mm. she tries the happy families routine after the road trip, of course. But I think quite naturally 
you would be tempted in that situation just to protect and preserve your child, which if you think about it is what she did probably vis-a-vis the Abbey situation. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pre-story to this in which she is trying out the role of happy family's mother, um, just mother. And then I think she realizes after she gets back from the road trip that you can't be a good mother to someone at all if you are not living an honest life, whatever that that may mean. And I think that moment resonates with a lot of women who grew up with mothers who were unhappy, clearly, who shouldn't have been in their marriages, not because they all had a Therese, but because they were, it, it wasn't right. And that notion that you must stay together for the children is a particularly damaging one yeah. to women. Um, so, in all of that, that scene in the lawyer's office in which she has to basically say that um, was probably the hardest scene to write in the whole script because it yeah. could have been it could have been um, uh, like a TV movie of the week kind of lesson or um, a lecture uh, on 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 either side his or hers and mm-hmm. but instead it ends with that line that really strikes to the humanity of these characters if we go to court it's going to get ugly and we are not ugly people Hodge is that a little bit of wishful thinking probably <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> things, things get ugly with everyone who's going through uh, emotionally difficult situations like this uh, you do expect some ugliness and there was clearly but at root they're not those people. It's always someone else who's those people. But I think in this case, they weren't. They're, they're quite decent people, let's say, both of them. Decent, but they're complicated. They're flawed in some ways. And yeah, Carol has to make a decision. And the decision is to sort of leave yeah. in the middle of the night almost. And abandon Therese just as their relationship is blossoming and they've just had this like sort of sexual breakthrough in their relationship. It's interesting then sort of like the two characters, they go their separate ways and they're living out their lives. Therese sort of throws everything into her career and becomes successful. Eventually they have that meeting at the uh, at the dinner restaurant that we in the finished film open with. But the, the film itself ends on a note of ambiguity. They meet for a drink. And Carol invites Therese to meet her for dinner later. She says, I'm meeting some friends. I think you'll like them. Initially, Therese turns her down. And then as the film climaxes, she decides to go find her. She barges into this restaurant. The waiter says, do you have a reservation? Therese says, I'm looking for someone. The waiter says, there's a dress code here, which I'm afraid you don't. Therese interrupts. I don't care. I have to find her. Breaks into this room. And then in this draft, she sees Carol and she sort of like you describe it as like it's in slow motion like a dream or a single pure moment of happiness solid and yet elusive her reason for living she moves towards her carol raises a wine glass to her lips and as she does so she turns slightly to see therese moving through the room towards her and it ends instead with carol holding out a hand a lifeline as you describe it to therese therese is almost with her 
she holds out her hand to Carol, their fingertips touch, and then cut to black. In the finished film, it ends in an even more ambiguous way where they lock eyes and you're wondering what the ensuing conversation is going to be. Can you tell me about this ending and yeah, why it was you didn't want to wrap a kind of like happily ever after bow on it, but you wanted to sort of hint at some reconciliation of some sorts? Yeah, well, of course, the book ends exactly in the, in the way that the draft you you just quoted does. And I saw no reason. This is, a, to me, was a perfect ending. In that, it, it basically reminds us that we live in a moment, we live moment to moment. We don't live in the future and we don't live in the past. But for that moment, they are together. And that's how it ends. They are together. You know, whatever else happens tomorrow, that's another day. And we, we, we don't go there. The narrative doesn't privilege that. I think um, in the film, that's still true uh, because of Carol's little smile. I, I think it's, again, it's, it's less overtly, it's a less overt emotional release than, than the other, but it, it's, it works. I think also the party scene that precedes it, there is a way in which the party was there for two reasons that are now largely, that they're absent from the film. One was Genevieve, the actress, is, um, hey, there's a possibility. Here's another future. Mm. I mean, not necessarily with her, but you're a sexual being. People find you attractive. It's going to be okay. And the Therese, who's always the watcher, watching everyone else there being with, happy with someone, with, which eventually leads her to, back to the oak room. It's like, what am I doing? You know, of course I have to, I can't help it. Even though I've told her, I'm never going to, I'm not going to live with her. And because that's the, that's the devastating moment in the, um, in, in the scene where they share a drink. It's like, well, okay, I guess you won't live with me or I guess you won't be interested in that or whatever she says. And Therese says, no. Nope. <laughs> and you think, oh, that's why she goes to find her. And I think, again, it's, it's, instinct it's visceral it's we are drawn to what we're drawn to and neither the film nor the book makes lays any great claims for what's going to happen which is why you know i always say it's better this way there is no sequel they'll move in together carol is older than therese she'll get older and then she'll be miserable about being older than, you know, the whole thing will happen. Um, You know, Therese will meet other people. It's not, it's not going to be easy. And then there's Abby, you know, (laughs) like Abby is always there on the periphery, you know, Um. waiting. (laughs) Um, So I think it's perfect that they find each other. That's it. Again, we leave them in that, almost in the state where they first met. What was the emotion like for you having battled so long to get this film made when you finally saw it for the first time? 
Lord God, it's so interesting because I, I saw a cut of it before, you know, obviously it's final form and watching cuts of films is fascinating because it's like watching, it's like reading drafts of scripts and you see how things form and how different choices are made, even in performance takes. Again, input from various people. Um, directors aren't immune to that either. It's about wanting to make something that is not confusing, that isn't, that's pleasing uh, to people, that's moving, all of those things. And, and so watching it, it's not like I saw it for the first time in its final form. And having been around people who have seen it just in that form, I know how it hits them. And that happened at Cannes with, you know, people we were, we were watching it with. But I never saw it that way. I mean, I feel like I've never seen it that way because I've just seen it all the way through. And it was, it was just taking things in like, oh, that's interesting. Or that choices. Hmm. Or maybe that, I, I don't know about that. And then all of the things that I, I kind of thought, I don't know about that, eventually found their way outside of the film. So, you know, there was a sink of some sort. Um, we all were in the same bubble uh, psychically. But to see it first time, I'd never just been hit by it in that way. I guess it's impossible once you, you've been involved with it for so long and 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 you think, yeah, I guess that's, uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, but of course, it's useful to watch it in the company of people who haven't seen four cuts of it or you know, whatever, <laughs> or haven't written so many, you know, little versions of it that you feel like I never want to see this again. It's an interesting reaction you have when you're on the inside of something. And just finally, Phyllis, is there a legacy that you hope for with Carol? Do you hope that it teaches Hollywood, for example, something about the sort of like possibilities of different types of love stories? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure you teach Hollywood anything ever. Um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a fool's game, isn't it, to, mm. to wish that. And actually, in the four or five years since then, it hasn't moved the needle what you see is a lot of gay male narratives being lauded as moving the needle. Here's the legacy that I think is interesting. There have been a number of films, I won't name them, um, who have obviously been quite inspired by, who probably were made possible by Carol, um, about lesbians, largely period pieces as well, which is odd. I would like, and, and that those films are thriving is good, some of them are made by men, which what I want is for women to be able to tell these stories and to, and to have a contemporary version of, well, not of Carol, because I don't think the same um, narrative can necessarily exist. But I think that there are, there's a broad range of narratives that would present lesbians as something other than exotics or people just like just interested in sex. I mean, there's a whole bunch of movies like um, Bound and that, that have presented, you know, hotties or, <laughs> you know, but, but they're quite bad. 
you know, they're bad girls. There's that, that trope. Like normal girls, normal women um, who aren't one thing or another. People living in the suburbs. I mean, we've had little glimpses of characters like that. But I would hope that one day, Carol and films like it will open up that discussion and the film about women won't be seen as an adjunct to films, films about men or, or patriarchy. Or, and will that happen in my lifetime? I have no idea. Um, I think the world has so many things to worry about that that's probably <laughs> low on, um, on, on everybody's list. But it would help. It certainly would. Well, Phyllis, this has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, yeah, I can't tell you how much I love this film. Thank you so much for your time today and for uh, yeah coming on Script Apart. Sure, my pleasure. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, bye. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.